0: what
1: is this where are we brian why am i
0: whispering this is what the fuck downloads from the secret ghost library and actually i don't know why you're whispering i normally speak of science and creativity as sort of being somewhat opposite but they're they're not real i mean inherent in science is this notion heisenberg uncertainty principle that, that talks about our limits and how we can observe things and if we have something that we can predict, it becomes not creative at all, and it's science.
1: Do you believe that there is a satanic worshipping group of people who are trafficking children and drinking their blood?
0: So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming, and, that, and a lot of it's a hoax, it's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax, a lot of it. is the only weapon with which I got the fight. I got a whole lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws. I got compasses. I got guns. I got dynamite. I got a whole lot to fight. I'll fight. I'll fight. I will fight. I will fight. Brian. Lindsay.
1: How the fuck did anarchists get such a bad rep? I mean, like of all the ists, I feel like they're probably the nicest ones. I really don't understand why people hate them so much.
0: I agree. I agree. Right? They're, they're very nice people. Yes. I mean,
1: it, it had a lot to do
0: with the Pinkerton police and the FBI and um, some assassinations, I think.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't sound super nice.
0: But... No, it's not. But um, there, there, was, there was actually a, a concerted effort on the part of... The United States government to eradicate society, our society of anarchists. Jesus sounds conspiratorial, but uh, it's actually history.
1: I heard that that's not the first time that that's happened. Actually, Um, It's, it's not. I think it's you that's told me that when the fascists come around, it's always the anarchists that they kill first.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, because they're the ones that are were typically willing to sort of say something right off the bat and 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 oppose these folks and not go along with the program mm. so yeah okay. and they they are generally i think anarchists are generally kind of hated by everybody it seems or it i mean it, a lot of this too comes about from the misunderstanding the confusion of anarchy and chaos equating right. those two things right and so everybody talks about a society descending into anarchy but you know by which they mean chaos and not anarchism.
1: Yes, which is uh, a notion that I had, I guess, my entire life, and you disabused me of what last summer? Is that right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. I would say it's perhaps similar to what happens with you know when, when people talk now. The the big buzzword now, of course, is socialism, and mm-hmm. how many people who are railing about socialism. Have ever read any socialist texts, really understand what it is, have any idea whatsoever?
1: Or critical race theory, for that matter.
0: Exactly. So instead, they're just throwing these terms out there and they're used as sort of boogie persons, I guess.
1: Yeah, so, so um, I, I guess I should introduce the topic here. So today's episode is the first of a three-parter that we recorded on anarchism, and uh, it's largely focused around James C. Scott's book, Two Cheers for Anarchism, which I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in part one, we're mostly discussing his essay. In part two, we get into some of the evolutionary science around human cooperation and, and interdependence as it relates to the plausibility of anarchism as a societal model, And then in part three, you dash all of our hopes against the rocks uh, for an anarchist utopia. And it's really fun. Yeah. (laughs) We'll have to get to that more later. But I found this really useful as a person, again, who I think, you know, I consider myself a baby to all this like political theory stuff. Anarchism, as you explained it to me, was super fascinating and I'm hoping that this will be a good primer for anybody who doesn't, isn't super familiar with this area. The one thing that I think that we didn't really get to explicitly, at least not as quickly as I would have liked, is like, what is anarchism, Brian? Oops. If it's not chaos. Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I, I think it was really, before I get into that, I think it was really fascinating. I know we mentioned this in the, in the episode, but it's fascinating that you know we, we chose this, uh, or we found this uh, text by Scott. After we had already, you know, accidentally referenced him or accidentally found him from the uh, uh, ghost library piece, the hidden transcripts.
1: Yeah, we did touch on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, I think it's really, really interesting. Or perhaps it was meant to be.
1: Or perhaps it's ghosts. Exactly.
0: Right. Um, So let's let me just say just a few words about anarchism. This is not going to be any kind of exhaustive definition, but just in broad strokes, anarchism, of course, is inherently anti-authoritarian. In my opinion, I'd say it's about as far left as you can get. It's probably the farthest left ideology there is. And you see this in its opposition to uh, hierarchical power structures. And this, of course, classically uh, means the state. So many anarchists Mm -hmm. uh, have talked throughout the uh, years, decades, um, maybe perhaps even centuries, about the abolition of the state. So they are opposed to state power and state authority, which, as we will talk about later in these episodes, you know, the first question is, oh, well, what are we going to do? Who's going to collect the trash? And all these kinds of things. But there really is a, a deep uh, analysis of hierarchy and hierarchical power structures in yeah. many, many areas of life. Starting... Perhaps most fundamentally with the state, but also, um, extending to into other areas of our lives. Yeah. It's also, and again, if you're actually talking to anarchists and, and other leftists, you might find some disagreement here. But in my mind, um, it is perhaps synonymous or certainly very closely related to libertarian socialism. Um, because anarchism is typically anti communist. And so. In terms of economics and the the economic sphere of interaction amongst people, I would say that it is somewhat socialist, but it is the libertarian piece is very important, which again is Mm -hmm. not the libertarianism that Americans are familiar with, which is right libertarianism. So libertarian socialism is uh, very much opposed to authoritarian or state socialism um, and communism, obviously. So this is a mistake that lots of people make. It's, it's, it's almost funny to me to hear, you know, people talking about this came up with BLM and, and, you know, Antifa, which is not specifically anarchist, but, uh, has, I would say probably a large anarchist influence or element. Yeah. Typically a lot of Marxists, certainly authoritarian Marxists and anarchists do not get along. Mm-hmm. And so these are not synonymous. Um, so that libertarian piece and libertarian socialism is actually quite important. The combination yeah. of those two. So that's, that's the kind of general outlook on its, uh, on anarchist ideology. Um, of course, there's a lot more that could be said about it. Just as like a super brief history, many people would argue that anarchists have always been around. There's always been opposition to hierarchical power structures. But I would say in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was, Kind of its heyday. That's when it became relatively popular. There were lots of anarchists, uh, in many European countries. Um, the Spanish Civil War is probably the, some of the most developed and anarchist, um, um, entities, uh, social organizations and also actions because they actually were fighting, organizing and fighting, uh, the fascists and, this is also when from this period in in a number of places is where we get this the um anarchism by the deed so basically we have people who are carrying out assassinations and um so that was a certain uh, uh thread within anarchism i would say and then after it the movement was largely suppressed in the united states and uh, along with socialism and later communism, uh, most people are aware of the McCarthy era um, and going after communists. But a lot of people don't realize that uh, an- many anarchists uh, that were publishing newspapers had their printing presses confiscated. They were uh, uh, kicked out of the country. They were expelled. People like Emma Goldman and some of them were just killed. Um, and it happened to socialists as well and uh particularly around world war one this is it was interesting to me from living in europe that you know many europeans have a much better sense of what socialism is what anarchism is what the difference between a center left person and a socialist and then a a communist right in particular and then there are all these flavors of communists like there's stalinists and malists and trotskyists and et cetera, et cetera, right? But they also seemed to at least know what anarchism was, generally speaking. At least they had an, an understanding that it was a political ideology and not just utter chaos. And part of that is because, as I said, I think our knowledge of this was, was, was largely eradicated. And then it was kind of reconstituted, I think, in, in the 60s and 70s. I'm sure it got, hmm. uh, you know, it never completely went away and I imagine that you know some of these phenomena probably really got started in the 50s just like we like to talk about social change in the 60s you know if you, you you can trace a lot of that back at least another decade if you look at what was happening in the 50s and and earlier too but in terms of a more recent phenomenon I'd say in the 60s and the 70s it kind of got going again but it had a it had a much more individualist bent overall so this sort of worker, uh, solidarity model from the turn of the uh, 20th century kind of got subsumed into a, a much more individualist approach, which I think reflects what was happening in the society then. So here we are today. That's that's basically uh, uh, that gets us up to speed. I got involved in in this milieu in the, in the 80s. So kind of what was coming off of the 60s and 70s, it was still somewhat similar, and then it went through number of changes in the 80s and 90s and, and and continues to morph and adapt i guess the only other piece i'd throw in is that because people talk a lot about anarchism being opposed to the state but what does it put in place and so mutual aid is the other uh, uh anarchist principle that the uh, i would say sort of positive and anarchist principle that comes out of the ideology i, I also want to say you know that this is just a, a quick take um, we're going to talk about this. Um, you know, people have a lot of opinions. Um, I'm not arguing uh, one way or the other at, at this point. We'll talk. We'll we'll get into it. I mean, I'm here for the introduction, right? We'll get in, we'll get into it. We'll get into it in the episode. I just wanted to say, you know, this is just kind of your little primer here.
1: Yeah. No, that's that that's perfect. Um, that's that's definitely. As I've been editing this, like that's definitely like, yeah. Now we need this piece up front before. We start talking about Scott. Right. So, so thanks, Brian. Sure. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So this, I I really enjoyed this recording, and I think there's a lot of good stuff here. But before we get to that, Brian. Yes. We have a new patron.
0: Oh, ah, Excellent.
1: I just I'm amazed every time we get here, and then there's there's another new patron that we need to thank. It's it's crazy. It is. So this so this week, our thanks go out to two fabulous thespians from Dakota Territory. Wow. I know. I'm very excited.
0: How is it us? our patrons have the best names? You know, we <laughs> people that live in like a running compounds, and now we've got fabulous thespians
1: <laughs> from Dakota Territory. I know, I know. Yeah, no, thank you, fellow opening arguments listeners. Uh, I I know this patron name reference, and it is from opening arguments. So thank you. Um, I don't I don't know if we deserve two fabulous thespians, but we are very grateful for your support. That's wonderful. We are. And the other thing I wanted to note was that um, one of our listeners, Ben, emailed us about a book. This is based on the last episode that we did about uh, weather conspiracies, and we would talked about, like, there was one point where we were talking about uh, just terrible strategies for trying to, you know, dump shit in the ocean and somehow make things better, because that always works. And so Ben was like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this the scene from this historical fiction series that... He's read by Patrick O'Brien called um, and this particular volume that he's talking about is called The Wine Dark Sea. And apparently there's a scene where these British sailors dump a bunch of whale oil in the ocean between two ships to minimize the spray from the waves because that's worth it, Brian. Right? Yeah, it
0: is. Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that works. And so I have two questions. So one, given your knowledge of fluid dynamics, would it work to dump a bunch of whale oil in? in the ocean to prevent I don't know, you getting seawater on your sailor clothes? Does that work?
0: Yes, maybe. Actually that has that that is a geoengineering that has been proposed as a geoengineering solution for okay. hurricanes. It was it was one of the ways that was proposed for suppressing hurricanes.
1: Okay, and we Actually, did talk about that.
0: Yeah. I mean yeah. the amount so so in principle, yes, because the layer of oil would suppress the, the spray, it would make it much harder for the spray to form. But if you can imagine how much whale oil you would need to do that.
1: So that was gonna be my second question. Is it feasible and desirable to implement the solution, Brian? Uh no. Oh. Bummer.
0: Sorry, I know. Now what are you gonna do with all those uh barrels of whale oil that you've been <laughs> stockpiling at your house?
1: Yeah, we have been we have been hoarding a lot of whale oil. I guess we'll yeah. just have to eat it. Yeah, bummer. I guess,
0: uh, Mm. no it's okay. really doesn't seem like it would be uh terribly effective i mean what that's that oil slick's just gonna move on at some point or you're gonna it's move true. on true.
1: <laughs> ah, such as life uh, no. <laughs> um anyway i i i was uh I, I appreciated hearing from ben on that that was really fun so thanks ben and yeah, thank um you. and if if you would like to support us on patreon Listeners, you can do that at patreoncom fuppod. That's uh, patreoncom fuppod. You can email us about mm-hmm. your whale related stories at fuppod at gmail.com. You can Twitter at us at fuppod, um, or you can join our Facebook discussion group, or you can do all those things.
0: That's right. Like
1: I can chew gum and record podcasts at the same time. Actually, no, I can't. That would be disgusting. <laughs> um, but I can chew gum and do a lot of other things at the same time, and you should too. So, Brian.
0: Let's get to it.
1: Okay. How'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes. Oh, there you go. Bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would Please, please, good people. I am in haste. Brian? Yes, Lindsay. How have we never read James C. Scott before, Brian? James C. Scott is so fucking awesome.
0: Well, I think that the universe has guided us to Scott. Um, That's why this podcast happens. We're on a journey, Lindsay. We're on a Mm -hmm. journey to discover Scott with Jesus as our editor.
1: (laughs) I was walking on the beach one time, and there were only one set of footprints, and it was because James C. Scott was carrying me.
0: (laughs) That's right, and Jesus was busy editing our podcast.
1: (laughs) No. No, that's not true. All right. Jesus gets credit for everything, Brian. It's not cool. Yeah, so we are discussing uh, something very exciting today. Been looking forward to this for a while. We
0: are. It's an essay entitled Two Cheers for Anarchism by James Scott, Mm -hmm. who is the inspiration for our whole ghost libraries, uh, piece, the ghost libraries yeah. piece of our title, which came from this concept that he, uh, came up with called hidden transcripts
1: mm-hmm. when he
0: studied master slave societies as a cultural anthropologist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we just like, uh, yeah, we just stumbled on him randomly cause I was like, where, why do we have this joke about ghost libraries? And then, you know, found that reference to Scott in this, in this other article, um but boy i i couldn't be happier for that coincidence because um th- this was great so we just read the preface of his book two cheers for anarchism um i i bought a copy because it's uh, awesome and i want to read the rest of it as you just said he's he's um uh, a cultural anthropologist he's done a lot of work on sort of master slave societies as well he has um he has a lot of work and he's published a book on this on uh, agricultural societies or like the transition into agricultural societies which, I don't know, maybe that'll intersect with some things we talk about today. I'm not sure, but um, I'd like to read that book, too. So
0: It will. Can I Can I do something, uh, have full disclosure here
1: on yeah. the podcast?
0: I read the whole thing.
1: You read the whole thing, Brian. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I'm actually drawing from the whole thing.
1: You're making me feel lazy now. Yeah, that's that's quite all
0: right. I, uh, mm-hmm.
1: I Once I got started, I couldn't stop. It's it's pretty awesome.
0: <laughs> I really like it, <laughs> yeah.
1: He's a really engaging writer, too. Yes, I mean, it's uh, this is a very sort of accessible treatment of anarchism. And I found myself, you know, like very engaged in, in a lot of what he was saying. Yes.
0: So one of the most interesting things about this book uh, or essay um, essays um, is that he came to anarchism through a long process as a cultural anthropologist. He said he was giving talks or lectures um, and, you know, maybe he's at conferences and people would say, you sound like an anarchist. And then a few years later, he'd say something else and they'd say, you sound like an anarchist. And people said this to him enough, or those sound like anarchist ideas, that he decided to look into it and found out that sure enough, his ideas were essentially anarchist, some some variant of, of that. And that is one of the reasons why it's perhaps easy to read, it's, it's uh, uh, approachable because he's not, uh, you know, hammering you with uh, um, uh, a stack of books that you need to go read. Um, in, as in order you,
1: just to have a conversation about him. Right? Exactly. I know. It's,
0: <laughs> it's a bit like being an academic, right? When you know, people are like, oh blah, 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 and you're like, well, go read this stack of books and then we'll talk. Yeah. But, you know, that's the good, that's the sign of a, a good educator, I would say one of the signs is if you you could just, if you can talk to somebody without having to do that, but then you have to be able to distill these ideas, take out the essential pieces and then, and then present them in a way that's uh, approachable or digestible Mm -hmm. to the non expert. And that's a skill in and of itself.
1: It, It is, but it's also probably a product of, of how we came to it. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like, I'm not trying to, like, pat myself on the back or anything, but there are certain topics, um, especially political topics, where I think that I feel very comfortable talking to people who maybe are more more to the right of me about certain things, because, like, I came to the ideas that I that I have now about politics from that perspective and not, you know, just like Scott, not through reading a bunch of political theory or anything like that. It's just sort of over time, I <laughs> kept noticing things and, you know... So anyway, I think that like, I think that his his sort of uh, journey into this probably makes him much better equipped to be able to talk to people, I don't know, in in ways that are more accessible because he's been there.
0: Right, right. And maybe people who haven't already made up their minds, you know, may be open to these ideas, um, yeah. but haven't quite gotten there, not as though it's a destination they have to get to. But And it's the same thing with, you know, I think about this in, in physics, you know, um, I had to work very very hard to understand these things um Mm -hmm. i would i i didn't waltz in and like and you know say oh i get all this i I worked and i worked and i worked and i think that's valuable when you're trying to explain things to other people you can relate to their uh uh, difficulties and struggle with the material and say hey you know it's it's perfectly understandable that this Mm -hmm. is confusing and, and exasperating um
1: No, it's not. And I mean, you know, maybe this is a discussion for another time, but I think it would be an interesting discussion is like it's so it's the element that you're talking about, about sort of, um, you know, understanding firsthand where people's uh, difficulties or like knowledge holes would, would be. But I think I think it's also like there's a lot of intuitions or beliefs that you can sort of arrive at through two different directions. And so I find that there's a lot of things in psychology that I came to through the academic literature, like conclusions that I came to from reading empirical literature. And then I talked to to you know some of my friends who are like, you know, very smart, have great intuitions about about human psychology. And it's like they have exactly the same intuitions, but they got there from a very different way. And it's so I you know this communication piece, I think, is very much facilitated by by recognizing like what intuitions would get you to a certain place, you know, without having to to know, like, you know the entire methodology of a particular field or something like that you know what i mean I
0: absolutely not. and that is the perfect segue into wow. this essay because um, he <laughs> he this that's exactly what he did and and i would say maybe it's just like a general summary or conclusion right up front about anarchism and his treatment of it is that there are these elements within that Body of knowledge and that ideology and that worldview, what I call the anarchist disposition, that you can arrive. A lot of people have these ideas. A lot of people think these things, you know, and but they would never call themselves anarchists. Half of them don't even know what that is. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that they've arrived at these conclusions, and this is one of the things that a lot of, particularly the early anarchist uh, thinkers pointed out is that, you know, this arises naturally.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's something we're going to talk about in a little bit. Right, Um, right. I do think that there's cognitive architecture that is absolutely consistent with with anarchism. Exactly.
0: So let's dive in a little bit into this essay. And the piece I want to bring out is, and, and again, what I think is the most helpful, the most useful is what he calls the anarchist squint.
1: Yeah, I like this a lot.
0: He says, um, basically, well, let me just read a quote from him. It's better than me trying to summarize it. What I aim to show is that if you put on anarchist glasses and look at the history of popular movements, revolutions, ordinary politics, and the state from that angle, certain insights will appear that are obscured from almost any other angle.
1: Yeah, no, I was uh, just going to say, I pulled out the exa- exact same quote. So that's <laughs> okay. awesome.
0: It will also become apparent that anarchist principles are active in the aspirations and political action of people who have never heard of anarchism or anarchist philosophy. One thing that heaves into view, I believe, is what Pierre-Joseph Proudhon had in mind when he first used the term anarchism, namely mutuality or Mm -hmm. cooperation without hierarchy or state rule. Another is the anarchist tolerance for confusion and improvisation that accompanies social learning and competence and mm-hmm. spontaneous cooperation and reciprocity.
1: Yes. All of which is uh, actually very much evidence-based. <laughs>
0: Ab- yeah, absolutely. And, th- and this notion of the squint, he said, you know, it's, it's like when you some- can't see something far off. So you squint your eyes and you, can see it a little bit more clearly, and that's why he calls it the anarchist squint because we're squinting at history, and you know it's it's an alternative approach to the, the whole lens thing. Everything now is a lens, right? Which I like. Yeah. I kind of like that, but I get a little bit tired of you know thinking about the lens that I'm seeing everything through.
1: No, I, I like it too. It's it's a it's an evocative frame, and, and, and so one thing that it made me think about, like the this this exact part that you just quoted. So you, I didn't know what anarchism was until last summer when you explained it to me. And mm-hmm. I remember that my my first reaction to it was like, like shit. Like the, it sounds to me <laughs> like the things, like this sounds very appealing and very intuitive. And the things that are appealing about it are actually the things that appeal to me about libertarianism back when I was more right of center. <sighs> the reasons that I would be skeptical of it now are probably the same reasons that I became skeptical of libertarianism once I moved further left. Right. And I right. remember you saying, and then we talked about like issues of scale. And you said at the time, like, yeah, that's why i consider myself a post anarchist. So like, did you mean by that something along the lines of what Scott means when he says, I may not be fully behind an anar- anarchist position in, in full, but I look, I think that it's useful to look at things with an anarchist squint. Is that similar
0: it, it's, it's similar. I mean, another piece about that is, you know, I would say classically a number of anarchists. Well, you have different strains within anarchism and what a lot of people think of are insurrectionary anarchists who, sure. you know, the smash the states uh, folks. There have been a number of people for a long time who've said, well, you know, number one, we can't really smash the state. It's yeah. more likely to smash us so that we have to think um, about what we can do in the meantime as the state uh, crashes itself. And there was a quote going around uh, that I heard a lot, which was uh, building a new world within the shell of the old. And so they were talking Mm -hmm. about trying to sort of create alternatives, um, alternative institutions. Um, We'll talk about mutual aid institutions. Yeah. yeah. Um, And there have been numerous examples of these throughout history so that's also kind of what i was thinking so in in terms of post anarchists, is that i'm i'm you know i I realized at some point i'm like well fighting with the cops in the streets is is it's a losing game i mean not saying that we that it doesn't have to be done at some point perhaps but i don't know that was i'll talk more about that later but i think that okay yeah
1: you know that that makes sense and it does i mean I'm sure that that we will in fact get to this explicitly but it does sound similar to to a concession that he makes later on about like it's probably not going to be the case that we get rid of the state. Right. And then he says the thing about the Leviathan which I think is a reference to somebody whose name I can't remember.
0: Hobbes? Yes. Hobbes. Yes, yes. 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 Yeah. And and that yes, that has been referenced by a number of anarchist thinkers or that that book and that concept. Mhm. Yes. One of the things that I pulled out of this I tried to think about you know what's useful and helpful about the anarchist squint what can we Mm -hmm. what can we gain from it and i would argue that the primary contribution that anarchists have made in their analysis it is their analysis of the state as inherently oppressive right and not just the state but many ideologies as inherently oppressive now as you mentioned scott also accepts that the state can in some sort can in some circumstances be emancipatory right yeah. and it's not going away you know and, and 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 this is not an argument that a lot of people but i think most people make this argument let's say when they talk about the police they're like well yeah it's not ideal but we need them around um, or you know we need these rules and these structures because they're they're useful in some way but i do think the difference is that anarchists have seen the state as inherently oppressive. And it's, and it's, it's, it's interesting with what's going on with the right now, because the right is, you know, has become uh, much more anti-government lately, but I don't think they supposedly. see. Supposedly. Yeah. Supposedly. Well, but I don't think they see it as inherently oppressive. I think they say, oh, it's just the communist states are oppressive, but capitalist states aren't. Um, yeah. Right. And exactly. And yeah, we're going to get to that, uh, to that, uh,
1: so but before you before you move on from this, so I mean, do you agree with that like do you think that there there is no possible configuration of a state that would be not oppressive or do you think that it's just that the state creates situations under most circumstances that are likely to leave the door open to exploitation?
0: Oh, that that's that is really tough and I'll, I'll have to be honest. I think I've kind of backed away from that question because I think okay. that's something that people on the far left and those especially who uh become very knowledgeable knowledgeable about it debate and i'm not sure if it matters um
1: yeah i i'm with you on that like i mean if 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 virtually like every state in history has essentially done this then like maybe it doesn't matter if in principle you could you could construct a hypothetical in which it's not
0: Right. And well, I mean, this is the, well, I'm going to get to the the, the things that people accuse anarchists of. And and usually the first one is idealism. Like, oh, that's just incredibly Mm -hmm. idealistic. We could never exist without a state. And it may be, and I'm just throwing this out as an idea, that perhaps this anarchist tendency and the use of the anarchist squint could be the thing that could help us to really rein in the state and put a check on its power. I don't know. That that may be unrealistic as well. I I would say I don't know. I mean I think about this. I'm gonna we'll talk about this later. Religion. I, I think a lot of religion and a lot of I, I mean a lot of religious ideologies. A lot of ideologies that support the state. I you know patriarchy. I think these things are inherently oppressive, and in that mm-hmm. it's important to acknowledge that these oppressive tendencies are built in and inherent. They are not just. So maybe I am answering the question that way. They aren't just an abuse of power, right? Oh, if we, we can only fine tune it. I mean, I don't think you can fine tune patriarchy. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm probably I'm probably more leaning that way than not. It's just it. it well, I, I guess this is a point we're we're probably gonna gonna get to. But I, I guess the only reason that the question came up for me is that I've been thinking about like, at least in theory, what a state is supposed to be doing, like why, what appeals to people about having a state. And it's it is solving like a mass coordination problem that's hard to imagine solving otherwise. I, I'm sure that there are ways to do it in a distributed way and retain most of the at least in principle the benefits that a state is supposed to provide to its to its citizens. I don't know. I don't know. I, we can I, come back to. I would
0: it. I would say yes at a particular scale. If you want to have the type of global society that we have now, these large scale societies, I, I I would say yes. We we need. Um, You know, the larger things get, the more centralized they become in Mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, So that might be a property of scale. And the other thing I would say is I'm not sure that, I mean, I I think it's good to think about these things, but I also am not sure how much it matters in terms of thinking about practical steps for the way forward. So so, so some some thinking about this, some thinking about this is, is obviously good, but we and uh, and as i say we anyone should be careful not to get stuck there because you can get stuck there and then that's when you get these debates between people yelling at each other that are totally unproductive it's much like a faculty meeting so um (laughs) and i would say supporting what uh you said and, and and um what scott brings out is that you know we we find ourselves the situation that we find ourselves in now ironically is one where the state seems like the primary counterweight to the political and economic might of multinational corporations so right. now now we're saying oh we've got a bigger problem here right <laughs> maybe you know the state is not ideal and not good in some ways and um you know has some uh, oppressive factors built into it but things could actually be worse i'm going to read a yeah. quote from him here and actually brings up hobbes this, of course, is the great dilemma for an anarchist. If relative equality is a necessary condition of mutuality and freedom, how can it be guaranteed except through the state? Mm-hmm. Facing this conundrum, I believe that I believe that both theoretically and practically, the abolition of the state is not an option. We are stuck, alas, with Leviathan, though not at all for the reasons Hobbes had supposed. And the challenge is to tame it. The challenge yeah. may well be beyond our reach. Yeah. And that last statement, that it may be beyond our reach, that's where I think we get into these discussions of whether it's inherent or not. Is it ever going to go away? Is it not? And
1: yes. There was another point that I thought was interesting and wanted to, to know what your reaction to it was. So he says at one point, um, my anarchist squint involves the defense of politics, conflict and debate and the perpetual uncertainty and learning they entail. This means that I reject the major stream of utopian scientism that dominated much of anarchist thought around the turn of the 20th century. Um, And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, it led to this optimism that the problem of scarcity had been solved and that scientific progress would, you know, essentially be the answer to all our problems. And, like, when I first read that, I was like, okay, but, like, in principle, those problems have been solved, and it's just that in practice – it hasn't been implemented because we operate in structures that perpetuate mass inequality. But then on the second reading, I was kind of like, oh, okay, but that's not exactly his point. He's just saying that like, he's saying that it's important to, to have a, a system that allows for perpetual debate and disagreement. Is that the point there?
0: Well, and that you have to shift and adjust. I mean, this is you know, it right. uh, the so Ooh, you have
1: to let it be a dynamic system. There you eh? go,
0: exactly. So okay. you know, one some some people would argue that you know the solving of these problems um, in terms of you know food production and you know uh, scarcity would not have been possible without capitalism, right? Some people would say. Now, I'm not saying um, I think anarchists would disagree.
1: Um, I would disagree with that.
0: But uh, a number of people say, well, this is how we got these things. We got factories. We were able to produce stuff. Uh, historically, you had these strains of leftist thought. You had um, anarchism and communism, for instance. Uh, you know, Marx. And so wh- one thing they we're going to see is uh, uh, anarchist disagreements with Marxism in particular, mm-hmm. because they, they said, all right, you know, capitalism has produced this sort of... Um, you know, we we, we transitioned from the medieval, uh, uh, you know, feudal society to a capitalist society, and then the next step is communism. And and I'm going to talk about this much more later, but anarchists, that's where anarchists were like, uh, no. I mean, we agree on some, we agree on the oppressiveness of capitalism, but the anarchists foresaw the, the issues with state communism a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and so... I think he's he's talking about that in terms of but I think I think the Marxists the communists and the anarchists did share this sort of scientific utopianism like oh now we can solve you know we we are we're producing fat food you know people don't have to live as peasants anymore that's what I think he's he's addressing and yeah. I agree with you that these oppressive and rigidly hierarchical structures are really the problem and Great. I guess and this is long-winded, but I guess the point that I was trying to come around to is that as an anarchist, right now it doesn't matter. Here is where we are. We've we've produced these things. And, and the other thing is that there are potentially anarchist ramifications and ramifications for increased freedom in all of these things, well, or in some of these things, right? I mean, distribute, you know, now that we don't have to produce every Thing in giant factories that require um, uh, tremendous capital, because doing that collectively without with, without this other without the capitalist machinery is a difficult thing. So yeah. the extent to which we can do that, we can localize that and scale that down, is significant. Now it might it might mean that producing things like jumbo jets, like you know, are, is is maybe not possible, yeah. right? I mean, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but th- I think the point here is, do we want those things? Do we need those things? You know, so we don't have, we won't have just in time, uh, uh, economic models, but so what, I mean, we might have to go back to, or we might have to get to a situation where no, we can't, you know, click on a button and two days later, something arrives at our doorstep,
1: right? Yeah. And, I think that would be fine.
0: Yeah. I think so We've too.
1: Talked, This came up before, didn't it? There was some stupid Amazon commercial where it was like there was a kid's birthday party and the person dropped the cake and they were like, it's cool. Amazon will get you a new cake in two hours. It's like, no, that's not good for anybody. (laughs) That's right. That's not good for the kid. That's not good for the, for the, the, anyway. The yep. Behind the scenes stuff. Anyway, sorry. So, but th- that's that's been a question that that I I has been very salient to me as well as I've been reading this stuff because I think the question is like, what what are the benefits, at least in principle, that the that the state is providing here in terms of like resilience to catastrophe and I don't know a variety of things, and are those things worth losing given the costs imposed by by living in a state society? And maybe as you say, it doesn't matter because it's here. And we have to live with it and just figure out, you know, what to do, given that we live under a state. But I don't know. I've been sort of grappling with those kinds of questions.
0: Yes. And, you know, as we've seen, um, states can take some wild swings in different directions and become, you know, suddenly they can become significantly more oppressive to larger groups of people. Though, again, from an anarchist perspective, one could argue that they're always Oppressive to some groups of people. In fact, yes. It's, I mean, we'll go down that yeah. rabbit hole. Actually, that's a good lead into another piece I had here about, um, you know, what's wrong with the state. So you, you we hear this stuff you, from the anarchists, and they say, all right, well, people would ask, so what's wrong with the state? And I, again, I want to read a quote from him because he says it better than I could. He says, the state arguably destroys the natural initiative and responsibility that arise from voluntary cooperation. Mm -hmm. Further, the neoliberal celebration of the individual maximizer over society, of individual freehold property over common property, of the treatment of land and nature and labor or human work life as market commodities and of monetary commensuration in, say, cost-benefit analysis, for example, shadow pricing for the value of a sunset or an endangered view. All encourage habits of social calculation, that smack of social Darwinism.
1: Again, I pulled out that exact same quote. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know, we'll talk more. I mean, th- this this opposition to social Darwinism is, is is a key tenet of anarchism from the beginning. We'll see this yes. in Kropotkin and others. And you know, I just can't stand it.
1: Yeah. So, but I have a question about that because I, I, I think uh, I, I probably, I may agree with everything in that quote. I'm just, I'm, I'm chewing on one part of it. I definitely agree with all the shit about the the neoliberal celebration of the individual maximizer of society. That seems indisputable. Right. The one thing that um, I, I probably agree with, but I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think through this. Right. Is the the part about the the state arguably destroying the natural initiative and responsibility that arise from voluntary cooperation, like fundamentally corroding our natural instincts to cooperate. I'm not sure that that's right. Like, I think, I mean, so what do you, how do you think, how does he see that working mechanistically? What are the things that he thinks undermines cooperation in a, in a state society?
0: Or the way I think of this is that when you have certain institutions, then you it's, can be easier to rely upon them than to do the messy work of trying to solve it via cooperation. So hmm. you're, you live in a neighborhood and somebody is doing something that you don't like and is maybe not good. So they're putting a ton of trash out on there. Right. And, you know, it's 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 attracting rodents or something you know, let's say it's it's even sort of a health hazard. So what do you do? Do you go and talk to people or do you call a city? Now, the issue is, of course, and then this is a very sort of benign example, but um, the issue, of course, is that, you know, you know, it may not be safe to approach those people or nothing might happen or you might get into a huge argument. And uh, that's why I say it's messy. Um, there might not be a good resolution, but I can tell you, that it's easier to call the city and make a complaint, and they'll come out and they'll slap a fine on them, right? And so, yeah. and then the problem gets solved in that sense. So, if you have to enforce those things yourself or try to, that's hard. And this is a very benign example.
1: No, I mean that 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 example is persuasive to me because when I read it initially, I, though, I was thinking about actual cooperation, right? More less about. The fact that we have sort of um established a division of labor on some things like enforcing social norms which i think could be independent from the question of a state the development of people that are going to be the enforcers right that you you see that in like pre-state societies I, i believe okay so i so i don't know like i i'll tell you i'll tell you like why why i wanted to or what what's interesting to me about this is that i think that like regardless of the presence of a state. You get natural inclinations to cooperate, and we'll talk more about that later, right? Um, what I think might be more the problem is is a particular state that, uh, like ours, that facilitates inequality,
0: and right? Incentivizes it, yes.
1: Yes, it and incentivizes re- re- reinforces it, reinforces it, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So people sense that that society is unfair, which is absolutely correct because of the massive inequality. I think that that. That there's lots of evidence that that corrodes people's natural impulses to 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 cooperate.
0: Interesting I mean, that you bring that up because the next <laughs> thing that I had here, the next quote <laughs> that I was going to read and the next point I was bringing out is that Scott recognizes that extreme wealth disparity is antagonistic to freedom. And again, yeah. so this gets to that piece um, of both classical anarchist thought and also Scott's thinking. You know, is that that this is a big issue. This is a big issue. And so, you know, you. I think the way you just expressed it is probably better and maybe be- or better than the example that I gave, because I was trying to think of a very extremely localized, hands-on uh, kind of argument. But let me read this quote from him and see if that addresses what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The consolidation of wealth and power over the past 40 years in the United States mimicked more recently in many states in the global South following neoliberal policies has created a situation that the anarchists foresaw. Cumulative inequalities in access to political influence via sheer economic muscle, huge state-like oligopolies, mm-hmm. media control, campaign contributions, shaping of legislation right down to designated loopholes, redistricting, access to legal knowledge, and the like have allowed elections and legislation to serve largely to amplify existing inequalities. Yes. And I, I want to interject something here. That I, I think it should be noted that cyberpunk and other sci-fi genres recognize this as well. I think I think the anarchists. This is what he's saying about. He basically said the anarchists have called this. He said you know forty years ago they were saying, and I'll talk about this when 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 neoliberalism became front and center with the Reagan Thatcher era. That the anarchists were like, oh, we we can see ex- not exactly, but we know where this is headed. We know yeah. where this is headed, and. A lot of other people thought they were freaks, you know, which they were, but they they nailed it. But I would also say that and the cyberpunk folks saw this too, but then again, I think part of the punk piece of cyberpunk is that they had these sort of anarchist or anarchistic worldviews. Um, yeah. and, and in their case, they saw the potential for control and manipulation inherent in these emerging technologies that were developed by corporate oligarchies, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you read... Neil Stevenson stuff, you know, for instance, um, some William Gibson, you can see they're like, oh, they, they see these potentia- potentials or potentialities. I would say that many of these authors had the anarchist squint. And one could argue that these technologies inherently contain the potential for control and exploitation due to the fact that they are only made possible by very large-scale development and production, right, by huge corporations with concentrated capital. So if, right. if, if, if these technologies were developed in a more distributed way, they would not look the same. More later on corporations, absolutely. But I would say by their very nature, they manipulate markets for their own ends because they exist solely to to produce profits. So they have no moral or ethical purposes or goals. You know, and this yeah. is what we see on the right. And I mean, this—I've said this in the last few episodes. The right is belly aching now about oh, oh, tech giants and the media. And I'm like, you know, it's always been the same. This is not a change. This—they're just saying they're just opposed to your ideas now. You were fine with it when they supported your ideas right. because they're not. And this is the problem with libertarianism, which—and especially for the. Uh, Europeans there, when we say libertarianism, we're talking about American libertarianism. This is yes. right libertarianism. If you say libertarians, yeah, libertarianism to a European, uh, they are thinking of, in many cases, of, of of left libertarianism. And I mean, another one could argue, one could uh, uh, make the case that another term for anarchism is libertarian socialism, right? Yeah. So socialist Socialism in in the sense of economic uh, systems, but not state socialism. And this right. is the other thing that the right gets wrong: is that oh, you know, they're lumping all this all you know the anarchists in with the Marxists and the communists. And no, you don't realize that this non-state piece puts anarchists at odds not only with capitalists but with communists too. And it oh, sees yeah. and it sees the the the. Uh, similarity between these two positions by, through their worship of the state. Right. Let me continue with this uh, quote of his because I think this is uh, very interesting. He said, It is hard to see any plausible way in which such self-reinforcing inequalities could be reduced through existing institutions, in particular since even the recent and severe capitalist crisis beginning in 2008 failed to produce anything like Roosevelt's New Deal. Democratic institutions have, to a great extent, become commodities themselves offered up for auction to the highest bidder mm-hmm. that was addressing the wealth disparity piece and and the extent to which it is built into yes these structures right i just want to bring up a couple of other a couple of other points um uh, from two cheers that i thought were important pieces of the anarchist squint as he as he calls it so we talked about uh uh, the state being inherently oppressive, or at least, at least you know, thinking about that, debating it, um, you know, uh, being open to that to that notion that that we've got you know we've got some inherently oppressive aspects to yeah. it. Um, another is that change occurs from acts of disruption, not gradual whitt- whittling away, and. So he says that acts of defiance are necessary to at least get the process going, right? And then the rest of society can slowly accommodate to the changes. And this is right. what we're seeing with, with Black Lives Matter. You know, everyone's like, Oh, oh, they're doing, you know, it's, it's disruptive. It's horrible. Well, guess what? The other going through the, the, the normal channels has not worked. And if you look at history, I think we see that very clearly. That, uh, yeah. So I would say, well, let's get to it. So I would say this, you know, obviously, uh, acts of disruption, this is a role that anarchists um, have played in modern history, right? Including those who claim the title explicitly and those who have these tendencies. You know, mm-hmm. that's one contribution that they have made to society. You can decide if, if you think that's a good one or not. The other thing, I think it's uh, it, an important concept is what he called infrapolitics, which are sort of non explicit and maybe even non-ideological types of resistance like foot dragging, poaching, pilfering, dissimulation, sabotage, desertion, absenteeism, squatting, and flight. And and, And general strikes. And general strikes, yeah. I mean, general strikes tend to be, at least when they uh, coalesce, then they become these political... you know, things with explicit political ideologies. But, as he points out, it contains a lot of people who would never call themselves an anarchist and, you know, are willing to steal from work or whatever, this kind of pilfering or, you know, slow down production. And, and this is true, you know, in the factories, right, where people were being horribly exploited, right? These were awful working conditions. So they just slowed down production. They're like, screw you. You know, I can't afford not to have this job. You kind of got me caught, so I'll just uh, you know decrease my production by twenty five percent. So now I think that, particularly with the corporate system, powers that be have figured out ways around this largely. Well, they 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 they've put up some barriers to it. Let's put
1: it that way. Uh, wait, put up some barriers to what specifically? To
0: to that kind of um. um Foot dragging or poaching. I mean, look at look at what's happening right. in, in, in um, Amazon warehouses now, where they they have a monitor that tracks you. And If you go to the, the bathroom and you stay too long, mm-hmm. there's an, uh, essentially like an alarm that goes off. There's you know, it, yeah. and, and then and then you get reprimanded, and or you get paid by how many minutes you're actually working, as opposed to you know all in the all see this is this is where this stuff intersects. All in the name of efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Efficiency supposedly but then the the purpose that it's serving is to produce profits for amazon right it has, yeah. it's nothing about the benefits or, or well-being of the of the workers is not even a factor that's taken into consideration
1: no it's it's not uh, it's it's not even strong enough to say it's not a priority it's uh, absolutely disregarded by all these policies and it's
0: been intentionally excluded
1: i would say yes yeah, yeah i think that's uh, i think that that's right Yeah. And uh, no, I I liked that. I liked that point too. And I was um, specifically thinking, so there was a point in this preface where he did talk about, did he talk about General Strike specifically?
0: I'm not sure that he addressed those specifically.
1: We got a, we got a listener question where they asked us to talk about General Strike. And so I was like, I read just a little bit about the one that's being planned for October. Do you know about this? I don't actually. It's not clear who's organizing it. It's not even clear that it's, like, particularly organized. So maybe, actually, so the point that made me think about general strikes in the preface was when he talked about how, like, certain kinds of protests, and maybe he didn't say strikes explicitly, but he talked about protests, um, like, worker protests in the 1930s and things, how, like, the most effective, like, the, the, the movements that were most successful and most effective were the ones that were least organized spontaneous and unplanned absolutely yeah and that was such an interesting idea because like my my um my sense when we got that listener question was like i mean it sounds great if you can coordinate that many people to, to to strike at the same time and i was like but but it doesn't seem it seems very difficult to get that level of coordination unless you have like a perfect storm of events that motivates everybody to do that at the same time but what i hadn't thought about was the fact that the lack of coordination itself would be an inherent advantage because, as as Scott said, there's nobody to negotiate with. That's right. So so your only option, if you actually do have sort of a mass revolt, is to actually address the needs that people are expressing. Absolutely, Um, yes. Which I thought was fascinating,
0: yeah. I mean, another possibility here, of course, is that, you know, the general strike is an emergent property of a complex system that is organized from the bottom up and not top down in a hierarchical I, I fashion. I
1: had the exact same thought. I had the exact same <laughs> thought, Brian. We are so on the same page. Um, and, it, and it made me think – so I know that what's going on right now with the labor shortage, it's not a general strike, right? But it kind of is, is starting to feel that way and it feels p- possible that it could it could take on that momentum to the degree that it becomes that. And it's, it's not organized. It's the product of everybody being fucking exhausting and, you know, having – I don't want to say enough breathing room during the pandemic, but like some things have sort of converged during the pandemic to, to give a lot of people who otherwise may not have had the, the time or opportunity to do so to really examine what their lives looked like in a, a capitalist system like ours and be like you know what fuck this right 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 i'm
0: not doing this anymore back to our the intro thing now we see the violent inheritance in inherent in the system and yeah. you know i hear a lot of people complaining oh well you know people don't want to go back nobody wants to work you know now that they've had these free handouts no nobody wants to that go back to is. a demeaning uh meaningless job or and then it's not even that. Maybe they actually enjoy the job, but what's demeaning is that they're not getting
1: paid enough. And yeah, so they're not valued at right. a deeper level. It's not just about pay, right? They are not valued. They're dispensable. Right.
0: But also when they aren't paid enough, then you, you add tremendous numbers of stressors to their lives yes. where they can't pay the bills. They can't feed themselves and their families. And so on top of this lack of being valued and the fulfillment that you get from work, uh, um, you also have these economic stressors that grind you down and they think, yes. why should I go back to this?" And here's, here's the, maybe the anarchist, the intersection of, or, here, or here's the anarchist squint, squint piece. So mm-hmm. an anarchist would say, well, of course, because you know, we saw this coming a long time ago because we saw these elements, we identified these elements within this structure this type of uh, capitalist structure that we've got that are inherently oppressive. But people that don't come to it from, you know, from that angle, they just they they just they realize this, as you say, when they, they, they get a break and then they say, oh, you know, maybe this is not a good way to be. Maybe maybe we can do things a better way. Yes. And and I, I find it so ironic that, you know, so a good example is with restaurant workers, right? And so they're not, you know, restaurants are not able to get people to go back to work because of all of the reasons that we've talked about. And so um, a number of them are starting to have to pay a lot more. And yes, this is hard on small businesses, but it, it needs to be done. That's, that's an actual free market adjusting. Yeah. Which is it's which is ironic because the people that are belly aching that people don't want to go back to work are then upset when the free market adjusts and and raises people's wages to to a yeah. reasonable level. It also makes us think about you know again what do we value in our society? What you know what do we spend our money on when we have it to spend? And and that maybe the problem you know of, see here's the here's the issue I, uh, one of the big issues is that. The problem then gets dropped on top of either the workers or the restaurant owners who are the, the, the petty bourgeoisie, right, the people that own these uh, restaurants. And no one's looking at this larger level, you know, the fact that corporations are sucking the wealth out of, out of our communities. And maybe if that were a little bit, you know, a little bit more equit- equitably distributed, there wouldn't be such a tremendous burden on, on these workers. When I Absolutely. Li- when I lived in Germany, Germans are notorious for not tipping well. Why? Because restaurant workers are paid a decent wage. I yeah. have had I had I remember going to a bar and giving like a, like I don't know. I was like, oh, I better give at least like a euro for every beer. And I gave the guy like three, and he gave two of them back to me. He's <laughs> like, you gave me too much. Because he's getting, I don't know, at the time, I don't know if he's getting paid 10 euros or 12 euros an hour, and you tip, like, your change, you give them a little bit because they're being paid well, right? And they're not scrabbling for tips, right? Now, you can make a lot of money on tips, but you can also make nothing. And, you, you know, and so... I don't know. It just, I, it, it was a wake up call to me about that whole situation where the guy gives the money back. He's like, don't give me all this money. I'm, I'm getting paid to do this job. You right. know, you're not paying, paying me to do this job through your tips.
1: Yeah. No, no. It's, I, um, it's funny that you, that you use restaurant workers as a, as an example in particular, or it makes perfect sense that you would because <laughs> the issues are well, encapsulated in the market. But um, I, I I listened to the daily podcast and they did a fantastic um, episode not too long ago. They started the episode by interviewing like restaurant owners and like the owners of resorts. And several of them were expressing the frustrations you mentioned a minute ago about how like, yeah, some of them were were saying like, yeah, they're just not wanting to work is like, how, when did people get so lazy? <laughs> and all this stuff. And then, you know, some of the people were were sort of expressing a different view on it, but then they transition into into interviewing like a range of different restaurant workers that essentially are are just instantiating the things that we're talking about. They were like, you know, one guy was like um, you know, this was always one I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a chef, and it wasn't until the pandemic that I realized that I was like I was I was physically killing myself because right. of the corrosive expectations in this industry right um, and then they had other people that you know were, were more like working several minimum wage jobs and, and this it was just I I really recommend that episode to people because it's it I think it lays bare some of the the problems that we're talking about here in a, in a really poignant way and I think
0: there's something that's worth reiterating and we'll come back to it um, when when I talk about the piece where he talks about the the petty bourgeoisie is that no people aren't being lazy, necessarily, no. they are recognizing that uh, uh, their situation in the system sucks.
1: Yes. However,
0: it does not mean that the restaurant owners themselves are necessarily the evil ones in this equation either. And that's, oh, no. know, people, people are always, you know, but I see, I think it falls on their shoulders sometimes, too. And not, you know, again, the, an anarchist would say, no, you've got to, you've, you need a, you need a broader analysis because this is coming from the top down. Right? It is. This is coming from the top down in a, plate, in, a, in a in a country where CEOs are making the amount yeah. of money that are they working? Uh, I mean, are they necessarily working harder than that chef? Well, I'll tell you something, man. People who are, are I've worked in restaurants. That is hard fucking work right there. Right. And people work their asses off, right? Mm-hmm. To get you your food out, you know, the way you want it fast. And it's it is not easy work so i I would push back against you know this laziness piece because
1: oh yeah, no, that's ridiculous um but but I think that that's a that's an important point it's like as as with with virtually everything else this is this is this is a symptom of a systemic problem, obviously, restaurant odors don't create that problem, and if somebody happens to work in a restaurant where they're not killing themselves then then they are incredibly lucky and somehow you know <laughs> they've managed to to carve out a space that um is is more robust these problems but i think that that the vast majority of these problems are created by pressures that are much larger than individual businesses yes Um, yeah
0: so i wanted to say a few things about my own anarchist views this was very interesting for me to read this for any listeners who already had this orientation i'd be interested in hearing what you had to say and it's also interesting to me for those coming outside of this uh milieu and i i describe anarchism as a, as a milieu rather than a movement, typically. Um, yeah. And what I really have to say again, I really, really like his concept of the anarchist squint um, because he really, he really kind of nailed it. And I think, that's, I think that's a large part of what I gained and retain because it's a very powerful way to view things, right? Yeah. And I think it provides insight, as he said, from a different angle. And I think he's, uh, he's right that anarchists nailed it in many cases. Which is not to pat ourselves on the back, but I, I think it—I think it's been very useful. Um, and it, it does rely on a radical view and interpretation of history, and it does not make you very popular. Um, but here's an example. I just wanted to say an example of, of one of the things that I gained is that I came to a realization via what I call the anarchist milieu that the U.S. was ripe for fascism in the 1980s. So this—I first encountered this in the mid to late nineteen eighties. And again, a lot of I mean, and not just anarchists, but a lot of anarchists were talking about w- with with Reagan. I mean you hear this in in, in punk rock, uh the, the hardcore of the early eighties, you know. Well, a band called DOA did a song called General Strike. And, you know, hey. there's a band there's a band called Reagan Youth, right? And oh, uh, Yeah yeah. Damn. Yeah. A lot of this stuff was, uh, was, was talked about. So a good example is you know, Reagan helped to uh, manifest or instantiate neoliberalism, which produced the extreme concentration of wealth and the shift of wealth to corporate structures, plus a reactionary politics that's driven by the inequality and by the deliberate removal of working class leftist tendencies, right, by the state in the preceding eight decades or so and then you get the necessary ingredients for fascism. You're, you're waiting for things to deteriorate to a certain extent, and and the right kind of leader to come along, and for the reactionary movements to build on the right. This is something that anarchists said from the beginning. They're like, "Oh, this is really dangerous stuff. This is where that's going to head." And then you see, finally, with Trump, I would say. And again, not to be disparaging, but a lot of liberals were like, oh, my God, it's fascism. Where did this come from? It's like, well, maybe it came from the last hundred and, well, I mean, 120 years of history and maybe even
1: that. All right. Give us a break, Brian. Like, I didn't know. Right. I, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know. But, you know, we're all learning here. <laughs> so I also...
0: The other piece I wanted to bring up, there were a couple of pieces that I thought have dovetailed nicely with things that we've said before. And so one thing that I've said previously is that one major piece of the puzzle that people always ignore is organized crime, which mm. we talked about with the twin insurgency. Yeah. Um, I think this applies to any kind of idealized ideology. And I don't think that anarchists have necessarily ignored this, but I think it presents a major challenge to its implementation, right? To so the impl- implementation of all of these egalitarian things is, you know, you have this element of organized crime. And then, you know, the question becomes whether or not the state is a significant deterrent to organized crime. And I think that's an open question. If you look at the history of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, yeah. they were unbelievably ineffective at, at fighting the mafia because they were actually much more focused on anarchists and socialists and communists and political dissent. The other thing, and this is sort of the last piece, is what I referred to several times as what I call the unholy trinity, religion, government, and organized crime. And why I think this is important to keep yammering on about is that I think these are interlinked systems of control. And this is something, if you read a lot of anarchist literature, particularly the stuff, and we'll talk about this with uh, the prehistorical societies and the Mm -hmm. agrarian societies and whether or not Anarchists or other writers are idealizing those. Yeah. I, I, the the piece that I would bring out of that is that these religion, government, and organized crime are interlinked systems of control that yeah. I, I in my mind cannot be fully separated. I think they go with one another. And if you look at the historical development of of for instance, well look at look at religious institutions and kingship, right? And you have the priesthood yeah. and the kingship now. Some historians might come on here and uh, trash my ideas and tell me I'm I'm completely wrong, but I think we found them intertwined throughout history in a way that can make them hard to separate. And as I'm going to argue later, uh, this brings me to the corporate power structure, corporatism, which interestingly, uh, Mussolini's definition of fascism was corporatism plus reaction. And he was talking about corporatism as a, as a way to organize people. But I think it, it, it's uh, clearly been implemented in our economic structure. So I wanted yeah. to read a quote from NPR that I read when I was reading about corporations. And this is what it, this is how it goes. The dictionary defines corporation as a number of persons united in one body for a purpose. Corporate identities date back to medieval times, observed co- observes Columbia Law Professor John Coffey, an authority on corporate law. You could think of the Catholic Church as probably the first entity that could buy and sell property in its own name, he says. Ooh. Indeed, having an artificial legal persona was especially important to churches, says Elizabeth Pullman, an associate professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Having a corporation would allow people to put property into a, col- into a collective ownership that could be held with perpetual existence, she says. So it wouldn't be tied to any one person's lifespan or subject necessarily to laws regarding inheriting property. Mm. So you, on one hand, you could look at this as a as a good way to collectivize things. On the other hand, I, um, we see this from the get-go, I would say, with, with religious institutions. And it also is really a good way to do things like hide money and pedophiles and 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 the crimes of your own organization and this is why I say this is why I call it the unholy Trinity and the fact that they've that these things are are very intertwined and I think that is a particularly anarchist view I would call that part of the anarchist squint that says no it's not just that that this organization is doing things poorly it's that this oppressive, thread or tendency is inherent in these in these organizations and in these ideologies
1: yeah yeah i'm coming around
0: yeah yeah i mean i'm trying to make i'm trying to make i'm trying to make a good case for trying or trying to clearly delineate these pieces um Mm -hmm. and and show how they're interconnected and i'm i'm not sure if i'm succeeding but
1: No, 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 no. I no. This is this is very interesting. I mean, I don't know. I hope that I didn't sound earlier like I was like I was super skeptical that states are bad, but oh, no, because I'm not. But I guess like, you know, when I when I was saying, you know, well, it seems like it's more wealth inequality. I guess I was I was thinking that, you know, it's possible that structures like states or corporations, as you're saying, like, it seems possible that you could get systems like that, that aren't inherently designed to create wealth inequality. But it sounds like at least part of the contention here is like no 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 that's that's the reason they were created in the first place is to is to create a structure in which wealth can be accumulated which wasn't hasn't always necessarily been around right
0: this this will be a really good question i think particularly for the next episode on you know about the cognitive mechanisms and you know to what extent is is this built in to the human experience, so to speak, and to what yeah. extent is it imposed? Yeah, and I have this—I have this criticism of anarchism as well, as saying that you know, oh, if we just remove these, this is all of these I, I, all idealisms, right? If we remove these these oppressive structures, then everyone's going to freely cooperate and work for the benefit of all others, and that's not obviously not true. And I think some anarchists have run afoul of this. I don't—I I do think they tend to be a little more realistic than that because they also uh, accept conflict um, as 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 maybe inherent. but anyway I didn't mean to derail your
1: no no you didn't thoughts. I mean I, yeah no the, the next piece here the next piece here will be interesting because I've, I' I think I, I partly agree with what you're saying here but maybe maybe there are some differences in how we we see some things so this this will be interesting
0: yeah so one last piece before we finish up this this segment is I think Scott highlights very nicely. Um, what I think of as an anarchist orientation or tendency. He correctly identifies, and you mentioned this, that many people have anarchist tendencies without taking a hard ideological position. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's very, very useful. And that's one of the reasons why his essay is so approachable, right, and accessible, because he said, yeah, you know, think about it this way. You know, a lot of people do these things or have these opinions, and, and not just those who have read all of these books. Right. The um, For the last piece there, I would say in terms of a, uh, an orientation or a tendency is the anti-authoritarianism, right? Yes. That's, that's a constant and central component that I think links many of these, the many flavors of, of anarchism together. And it's also... I think what really, that's been one of the most useful things, this anti-authoritarianism has been one of the most useful things I've gotten out of it in my life. I mean, it can manifest itself as like a, you know, a simple rejection. When I talk about surface level rejectionism, what I think of as like heavy metal Satanism, like, oh yeah, we're going to offend our parents. But if you're serious about anti-authoritarianism, then it'll, it gives you a check on these different ideologies. And this, again, is where I think we get later, we'll get this analysis, this comparison of capitalism and communism and liberal and conservative and where the anarchist goes, you know what, you're both playing the same game,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: just in a different way. So that's sort of the lens as we... Or the squint. Of of, of, of how to view. Oh, right. Squint, right? (laughs) So it's probably a good place to wrap up here.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, I'm looking forward to the next part of this conversation. This will be fun. Me too.